Well, welcome to A Reason for Hope, everyone. So glad that you're joining us uh, this evening. A Reason for Hope, in case this is your first time with us, is a live broadcast guided by your questions on the Bible. Maybe there's uh, passages in the Bible that have confuddled you. Is that a word, confuddled? I'm going to use it. I'm going to use the word confuddled. Uh, or perhaps you're going through something in life, a life situation that you would like a biblical perspective. We are here to uh, seek the Lord with you in his word, the Bible. And so we're very glad that you're joining us. Uh, with me in the studio today is world-renowned and award-winning illusionist Adrian Van Vactor. The master of confuddlement. <laughs> is that a word? Is confuddlement? Uh, it is today. It is today. Mm, we're yeah. claiming it today. You're the English speaker. Yes. <laughs> and also, Pastor Sean Richards, he's a student minister here at the church and many other uh, roles as well. We, um, When we work here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we wear many hats, don't we? Yes, and we beards. Do. Yes, and beards as well. <laughs> it's going to be one of those shows today, I think. Um, so we're, we're very glad you're joining us. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or um, one of the affiliates, then you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. But do send your questions by email and we will get to them on the next time. You can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. But if you're joining us live, um, which you can do so on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship, um, on Facebook, Facebook there, uh, on YouTube is A Reason for Hope. We are also at our church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can watch us on Roku. You can join us on Apple TV. We have a church app, so if you search for Calvary Christian Fellowship in your app store, those are other ways you can join us. So just send your questions in the chat functions of all of those uh, platforms, however you're watching us, and we, I, will be monitoring those things as they come on in, and we will endeavor to get to your questions on the show. Did I cover everything? Out. I think I did. Well, we're in a new studio, too. We're in a new studio, too. I didn't want to mention it and show off, but we have new digs here multiple cameras, background, all kinds of stuff. And so we're very excited about pressing all these buttons and hope that uh, yeah. this is going to go well today. So, mm -hmm. um, But above all else, it's about seeking the Lord in his word. We pray that he's mm -hmm. going to use this time. We already prayed together um, before the show to that end. But um, Sean, would you like to pray as we head into the show together today? Be an honor. Dad, thank you. We have the chance to be in your word among your people. And we pray in your spirit. Equip Adrian and I to not only give answers that reflect your voice, but also your heart. Equip Dave to be able to not only reflect the hearts of those who are seeking questions, but also to present them in such a way where it truly is where your minister, where your spirit can minister to and through us. Thank you that we have the honor of being a part of this great work, and we ask that you would be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. That is true. All right, so starting us <coughs> off, what question do we have to begin with? Well... You had mentioned that there was a bit of a debate going on um, uh, but, uh, since last time um, to do with uh, marriage and our eternal state. Is that right? Can you Hedonism, essentially the worldview that pleasure is the highest good, that God's purposes are wrapped up in us feeling good, which the existence of evil would soundly disprove. We don't believe in a God who's solely captivated in our dopamine receptors. So the, uh, of course, Christian worldview stems from that assumption that as Paul the Apostle was suffering, that God wasn't letting him down. In fact, he told him that was what he was going to experience. But in a nation as prosperous and peaceful as our own, we're oftentimes put in a position where we have to challenge assumptions that people make. 
So when people are wrapped up in issues as far as gender and marriage and all these other issues, uh, Peter Martin, my father, and others have all addressed on many occasions the issue of the hedonist lifestyle. And on Friday, I believe it was, a follow-up question was asked regarding whether or not Jesus is our husband, and if so, in what sense. The passage that they, of course, had in mind was referencing Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, but, of course, narrowing down more specifically to verse 33. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The question is, is that literal and a physical relationship and the intimacy therein? Is our heavenly existence centered around sexual intimacy or something greater? Dare I say that? Or, of course, is it all meant to be taken woodenly? And this is, of course, where interpretation methods come in. So we want to address those piecemeal, starting, of course, with in what sense is Jesus our husband? Um, Adrian, you're the husband between us. So what is your experience, and how does that reflect Jesus' nature? Well, when you enter into marriage from a the, the ultimate view that God sanctioned it, created it, uh, it's the one thing that we get to experience in life that was created before the fall. So of all the things that we could experience, you know, there, we don't live in a garden. We don't walk with God in the cool of the day. Walk with God in the cool of the day. Uh, marriage is one of those few things that I'm aware of that we experience <clears throat> as human beings that God created before the fall and that we still practice today. So when we look at what God created in the sanctity of marriage and entering into that, I, I would I would say that when people <clears throat> look at references where God uses marriage as an illustration of of our relationship with Him, so if I were to dissect it, I would say, well, a marriage, my marriage to my wife, <clears throat> is means that I have no deeper connection to any other human being than her. In fact, we are what the Bible says, one flesh. We are so united and so entered into a oneness covenant <clears throat> with each other that I cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, even attempting to do so on my own volition, have a deeper, more intimate relationship than that. So, and, and that's just, that's both emotionally, physically, and perhaps you could say even spiritually, because you experience all the pains of life, all the, uh, the trials, the tribulations, you do it as one, as co-equals in a relationship that has built in hierarchical structures that God in, in, in pla placed in there. And so when people uh, look at that as an illustration of Christ in the church, I typically understand that to mean that connectedness, that when it comes to worshiping God, there is no greater intimate relationship in a spiritual sense than what we have with God. So to use the, the closest you could ever have connection you could ever have with a human being is an illustration for the closest connection we could ever have with the spiritual, and that is our relationship with God, that he is, um, <clears throat> we are the bride, he is coming to get us. In fact, during the ceremony, I was always kind of disappointed that the bride is brought in. Um, I did it the opposite, because I, I at least that's that was the plan, is the idea that the bride is already there, and the bridegroom comes to take his bride, or not take it in a in a misogynist way, but to come and, um, you know, be glorified in that relationship, that intimacy. In fact, uh, the marital act, I think Puritans, you, and I, Mike, you can correct me on this, but they, 
the idea of worship, they, it was sort of like the idea of worship. You, you alone are worthy of this level of intimacy. No one else ought to have this level of intimacy. That's why adultery is so bad. And, and even though it's temptation that all human beings go through, <clears throat> uh, it's evil because only this other person is worthy. I worship, I worship you in the or old English uh, marriage ceremony. I, you know, I, you alone are worthy. And so we are not to conflate the physical with the spiritual in the sense that we have some sort of physical marriage with God. No, it's just the idea that God alone is worthy of my adoration and worship as a created being with the creator. I should not devote in a worshipful manner myself or my body to any other being in that worshiping God creator, creator versus created person. I can't have that relationship with any other God. And so I think that's the proper way of understanding the illustration of marriage that God uses, something he created and then also uses to illustrate our relationship with him. But taking any further than that is to miss the point. Yeah, and I think that is the whole point. When we're defining marriage, of course, you have in mind Genesis chapter 2, Matthew chapter 19, and Ephesians chapter 5. The father speaking in the garden, the son speaking when challenged by the Pharisees, and the Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul, all talking about this issue of marriage as defined as one man, one woman, for one lifetime. He then specified God's commitment to us, not in a physical way, but in the spiritual way. And you interpret that because there are other passages that make a physical interpretation of that impossible. The most obvious is, of course, John chapter 4, where Jesus clarifies to the Samaritan woman, that God is spirit, and those who mm -hmm. worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So for us to assume that God's going to have physical relationships with us, or a physical relationship in that sense, we are uh, reading mm -hmm. something into the text that can't be justified by others. But note, And there's a similar concept with that in John 6, where Jesus is describing, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have any part with me, pardon me. And that confuddled the disciples. <laughs> that's the word for today. It is. That's the word for the, And so when they uh, were troubled, later goes, what troubles you? And they're like, well, you know, I'm. we know there's an apocalypse someday. We just didn't know it was going to be a zombie apocalypse where we're going to actually be taking part in your <laughs> flesh. And he said, the words I speak to you are spirit. The flesh profits nothing. So, and if God said that, then I think he's still saying that. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and that's the whole point in this. We're making sure that if we come to a conclusion, an interpretation of the text, it first has to start with what other texts are saying. And if there's a conflict, I'm the problem, not the text. So the one issue I think that needs to be clarified, in what sense is Jesus our husband? You can say we're the bride of Christ, and therefore I as a dude either have to become a bride, or Jesus is engaging with me a dude, in which case modern culture says this is awkward, at least from a Christian worldview. But if, on the other hand, you note, and you use that word frequently, spiritual relationship, what way do you justify that interpretation? And you would go to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus was being asked about the resurrection and marital statuses, believe it or not, therein. And he, well, basically levels the most uh, sarcastic observation you could imagine towards people who are literal Bible scholars. He says, you are not mistaken, this is verse 28, not knowing the scriptures, which they had a job to do, or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. 
Now, the reason we interpret that as then a spiritual relationship is because in heaven, not that we'll be purely spiritual beings, but that there won't be this covenant of marriage as we know it. Because what was the context of this? The Pharisees were asking, in a physical marriage, in an earthly relationship, there was what? Seven men who all had, their words, not mine, the same woman. So how is this divvied up among the men? Is this some Islamic bizarro world? No, he says what? This is the power of God. In the resurrection, we don't have those relationships anymore. You have me. Now, the inference would be, oh, so Jesus is then going to be our husband? Not in the sense of a physical one. We're now in a spiritual relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is something that the world continues to fall short of time and time again. Adrian, I was given the honor of observing your relationship with your now wife, Allie, for years before you were able to have a marital relationship. And while it is certainly something you're grateful to God for, the way that you related to her back then, is it any more meaningful then than it was now, apart from the new factors introduced? Well, it was fun then. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's hard work because we have twins and a toddler, so we feel like we don't get any time with each other. So it was fun in the sense that we had all that time to build our friendship, and it was a friendship. We didn't start dating until two and a half years into our friendship, and our friendship was really more of a dating relationship because we spent so much time together. Yeah. But uh, there was just this need to say, let's not talk about intimacy, marriage, because we were both in places where we just weren't ready for that, but we probably waited too long. <laughs> we were talking about it for you behind your backs. Yeah, yeah, everybody knew before we did, so... But <clears throat> absolutely there's a difference. In fact, um, there were huge boundaries that I had to set because I am a weak man and I am a weak heterosexual man and desire intimacy with the female physique. So in light of that, it was very, very challenging to not want to express and live out those desires. So it took great patience uh, with some occasional failures and to a certain degree, but fortunately for us, we were able to maintain a healthy five-year uh, relationship of pure, a pure relationship, you know, for the most part, which was re- we're really grateful for. But <clears throat> in terms of the mentality and how you live your life, absolutely, it's very different. There is a, you enter into a covenant. We didn't have that before marriage. We were friends, and what she did with her life, it was her business, and what I did with my life was my business. But when we said, I do, and we made a lifelong covenant, that means that now her sins become my sins, my sin becomes her sin in the sense that we share in our grief and our suffering and the joys of marriage. And so there's a, the dynamic is completely different. And I think, in a sense, that's what happens when we come into a relationship with God. We now say, not my will, but your will be done. So now I have a Lord over my life because I have relinquished my will to God. When two people come into a covenant marriage, they're essentially doing the same thing. Both of them are saying, I relinquish my autonomy to you as now the other half of a one flesh relationship, a covenant marriage, which, of course, the reason, one good reason why uh, you cannot equate the illustration of marriage and our relationship with God to a male-male, some sort of weird homosexual relationship, as one of the questioners asked, um, I think they asked it that way, uh, is that one of the purposes of marriage in this life is to propagate the human race, something that a gay relationship can't do. And so 
I, I would say that uh, it would be kind of a stretch to follow that logic. But then following through on the logic we're addressing this question with, as far as you being friends with your wife or me being friends with members of any gender, are any less glorifying to God? And the answer is no. They're no, all expressing as far as glorifying to God or pleasing to God, absolutely. There's no hierarchy. Those of us who are married are not superior to those who are unmarried. In fact, Paul would argue to the contrary. There's, there's some great benefits to being single, especially when it comes to your desire to serve God in ministry. Take it from me, he said, as one who knows, having lived it, it's a lot easier to please just God and not worry about anybody else. But it's also very worthy, and there's nothing wrong with getting married and being confuddled by the <laughs> the problems that marriage brings. <laughs> That's a word again. We had a question um, from Yari, actually, which relates to this, so I'll throw this in. Um, is it possible to resist temptation as a single person to, to commit to a life of being single or just you happen to be single? Is it possible to, obviously, there's a whole kind of facet of who we are as humans that you're, <coughs> you're you know, resisting. Is it possible to resist that temptation as a single person? Not on your own. We made it five years. Yeah. So it is possible. <laughs> I mean, for regular people, not you, Adrian. Oh, well, yeah, well. not world-renowned. Well, like I said, it wasn't easy, and it wasn't without its failures. But um, yeah. absolutely, there isn't anything, as Jesus said, there is no temptation that is, uh, uh, how does it go, Sean? There's no temptation that is... Uh, First Corinthians 10, 13, no Jesus, temptation yeah. has overtaken you except what is common, common to man, man yeah. but, that, uh, but in the method which you tempted, uh, so will be provided the way of escape that you may endure it. But didn't uh, I'm trying to remember something that Jesus said about temptation, that there's always a way of escape. Is that yeah. or am I? That's, am the, I, that's the passage. I'm actually confusing the. Okay, so it is Paul's. Yeah. Then, okay. The Holy Spirit speaking. Yeah, and so it, it seems to me that if that's the case, then it's just as true when you're single as it is when you're not single. In fact, I would argue, at least this has been my experience, that it was far more difficult to. Uh, avoid temptation or to not yield to it as a single person than it was as a married person. I, I, I don't, I'm sure there's some psychology behind that, but um, that's just been my experience that, that once that intimacy switch has been turned on, you, it's actually a lot more work in my opinion, from my own experience being, it's a lot more difficult being married than it was being single. Yeah. Because you're, struggle as a single person is a binary yes and no in which case it's always no not yet i have a better option mm -hmm. as a married man you got to consider the feelings of another human being let alone a woman so yeah. when we're talking about these issues we need to make sure that's kept in mm -hmm. mind the issue isn't god can you take this temptation away it's how do i handle it regardless of how i'm called mm -hmm. and in either situation it's always the same answer i'm choosing something better and when you don't, obviously, get back up. But the point being made and the foundation of Yari's question is obviously wanting less temptation. And we will all would prefer that. Mm. But the Bible doesn't make that promise, Yari. When it comes to someone who's called to singleness, God doesn't take your temptation away any more than someone who's called to be patient is suddenly given a cessation of conflicts in their life. You're given the Holy Spirit. You have the opportunity every day to depend on him and also to fall back on him when you do or don't. The point of emphasis isn't perfection. It's the opportunity daily to glorify God by saying, in the face of such temptation, 
you're the better option. It was uh, C.S. Lewis who made the illustration firsthand experience. Uh, no one knows how difficult it is to be, uh, a bad man doesn't know how difficult it is to be good because he surrenders to the opposition to it immediately. Just like in France, this is an ode to your people, people were obviously given much more exposure to the Nazi war machine than they were in France. Vichy France surrendered immediately. England kept calm and carried on through the entirety of World War II. That's what we do. So who was the one who actually knew what it was like to endure temptation? It was the British. It was the people who faced it to its end. So when we go to the book of Hebrews, for example, where we read Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, people say, oh yeah, God doesn't know what it's like to suffer temptation. He's above it all. No, he uh, willingly subjected himself to the same human nature that Adrian and I have. And whether you're in the position that Jesus and I are, in his incarnation at least, as a single man, or you're in the position of Jesus in glory and Adrian, we're both in the same opportunity. We have to note every decision we make in light of the nature of God. Mm -hmm. And until we're just like Jesus in our nature, we won't be perfect. But the answer isn't, <clears throat> stop tempting me. The answer is, lead me into a deeper fellowship with you so that you're always the better option. Yeah. And I think Paul did a good job treating this, and this applies to whether you're single or not single, and whether you're tempted by uh, the desire for intimacy or not. Um, he says, I say, this is Galatians 5, verse 16, I say, then walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. So if you're born again, God has placed inside, has come into your life in such a way where he's given you the Holy Spirit, who is a person, his divine being, residing in your life, they're actually quenching and fighting against the desires of the flesh, which is another uh, <clears throat> way of saying the sinful nature. When the Bible uses the word the flesh, it's describing not necessarily just your body, but the actual sin nature, the, pro the propensity to go against God's will and do what is not good for you. <laughs> and if we walk in the Spirit, who's, who's combating the desires of the flesh, so that you don't just go around doing whatever you want. It's impossible for me, as a Christian born-again man, to completely live the way I want to, even though there are times where I do do that. But the discipline of the Holy Spirit, the discipline of God, the conscience, the battle, the fight, makes it literally impossible. It seems to me, I mean, it seems impossible, I'm sure... If you push and push, eventually God lets you go, as he does describe in Romans 1, where he just lets people, gives them over to their own debased desires. But <clears throat> God gives us a way to have victory. And so I would say that applies just as much to a single person uh, who desires intimacy, who desires to honor God, who desires to not uh, fornicate or lust in a way that's displeasing to him, that they could have victory, and that God will honor that. I believe that God honored our friendship and how hard we work to remain pure as difficult as it was and, and the, the different types of failures that we did experience but there is a level of I, I, am, I am worshiping God for our marriage because he gave us so much victory and so it's, it's a blessing and I think that you can experience that as a single person throughout your single life. Yeah. And it's important you guys have said it but there's temptation in every walk and season of life you know I, I think I made that mistake when I got got married I thought that would fix you know a lot of temptation 
you know, and it, it doesn't. You know, there's still temptations, you said, in, in, in married life. It's not like you're single, you're tempted, you get married, you're, you're not. You know, there's still temptations, there's opportunities, and like you said, every mm -hmm. day is a coming to the Lord to, to sustain us. I think that's the something I heard recently someone shared with me. It's not that we won't be tempted. It's not that we don't need, mm -hmm. you know, we were made to, to, to want to need physical, you know, mm -hmm. physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, but God will sustain you in those things. And this, and this is where Christian disciplines are very helpful. And there's, there are disciplines that we institute in our lives, like prayer, fellowship, the reading of scripture, that help cleanse the mind or yeah. transform the mind. You know, this is uh, uh, where we can renew our minds. And I like the way Paul puts it. It's that these Christian disciplines are God's tools for us to mortify the flesh, the sin nature, the desire to go against God's plan for our bodies, for our lives, and to live a life that's pleasing to him, the life of love, the life of glorifying God in our, in our everyday lives. And, <clears throat> you know, Paul says, I die daily. He didn't say, I died once and I'm done with it. He says, I have to die daily in Romans. He says, I have to buffet my body. It doesn't mean put it on buffet. It means beat it, you know, beat it to submission. And he has to say, I make it my slave because I, how can I, who died to sin, still live in it? And meaning, living in it, meaning in a continuous uh, rebellion against God. He says, no, I died to God when I, when I, I mean, I died to myself when I came to faith. And so how, and when he says, how can I who have died to sin still live in it? And he, how can I just live with complete autonomy towards in reference to God and for myself? I can't because I died to myself. And so yeah. if you uh, put yourself in that mindset that, no, Jesus is my Lord. When I came to faith and I was baptized, uh, even if I didn't understand all that I was saying, you know, all that I was doing, I just knew that he was truth. He was right. He was saving me from my sin. And as that relationship grows, practice those disciplines. And the more you practice focusing on God's word, the easier it is to not be uh, tempted and dwelling on the, the desires of the flesh, the more you're in Christian fellowship and Christian community. Gosh, I can't imagine we have someone in studio here who had uh, started a women's purity group, and it was life-transforming for my wife. I mean, we had our struggles, and she started going to the purity group, and it was like night, and I, she was a different person. Just not because there was something she didn't know, but just needing that community of believers to encourage her to continue fighting the good fight. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, I've got a question come in here from our website from Healthy Terry. I don't know if that's your given name. Might be Terry, but Healthy Terry. Uh, will Jesus himself. perform any healing miracles during the Millennial Kingdom? Why is the Millennial Kingdom not mentioned much? We don't know much about it. Any insights? We know more than I think a lot of people give it credit for. The problem is most people don't read beyond Revelation chapter 20 because in that chapter we've given like four verses. But if we go to, for example, the book of Isaiah, it's peppered throughout the entire book, and it's a long book, 66 chapters. When we want to know the sort of things the world will be experiencing or going through at that time, the best way to summarize it is Eden-like conditions. And the reason why I would make that claim without fear of uh, uh, correction is because Isaiah 11 spells it out pretty eloquently. You can read it on your own time, Terry, but if we're going to be brief, the essence of the Millennial Kingdom is going back to our Eden-like state. 
And since there wasn't disease or the need for miracles in that sense, uh, intervening on the fallen nature of, I guess, nature, that's going to be undone. Mankind's fallen nature won't be fixed. We can read that in Isaiah chapter 60. But if we're asking the question, what will ultimately Jesus be doing? It won't be proving himself because he already has. He'll be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, we're told, not just in, but also uh, in Isaiah, but also in Daniel, also in Zechariah, also in plenty of other places. So a familiarity with the Old Testament will clear up some missing gaps in the millennial kingdom. But as far as what else Jesus will be doing, we're told, again, not that he'll just be, according to Psalm 2, rebuking nations afar off, keeping them in line, will not only be enforcing world peace, which we read in Zechariah and Isaiah and Micah, but we also are told that we'll be ruling and reigning with him. We'll be enjoying this world as it was originally created to be. But as the uh, old, I guess, saying goes, uh, is it nature or nurture that's the true heart of evil? And the answer is given to us at the end of Revelation 20. It's our nature to rebel against God. People who haven't chosen a relationship with him will default to the enemy, <clears throat> and mm. that will be the last judgment. Which will be sad to see after a thousand years of Christ's reign to even fathom someone saying, ah, I'm going to give it another try doing it on my own. I'm yeah. going to follow this guy instead. <laughs> oh, and that's the irony of the whole deal is with our resources today, we have to understand things like historical criticism and the manuscripts. We have to be able to examine evidence and know whether or not Jesus was a person or not. Mm -hmm. We have to default to the opinions of atheists and mm -hmm. saying, hey, even they admit that Jesus was a real person historically. And yet in the face of all of this, we just can't imagine a time where people are going to literally be living with Jesus right over there and still say, ah, I don't want anything to do with that mm -hmm. guy because it's the same heart. And that's what we need to realize. So now, it won't be exactly like Eden, though. There will be one continuous miracle, will there not? Yeah, the presence if of If there's God. a way for me to not be tempted to rebel against God, that I will be still a free will being but somehow unable to sin, that to me is a miracle. <laughs> Mm, yeah. well, no more than our ongoing salvation is right now. Mm -hmm. But knowing yeah. that we'll be enjoying it in the resurrection, that's also mentioned at the beginning of the millennium in Revelation 20. Uh, also note that some of the um, entryways to the millennium are mentioned in Matthew 25 regarding the uh, judgment of the goats and the sheep. That is more commonly associated with those who will enter into the tribulation following, or enter into the millennium, following the tribulation. Um, these are, again, just stuff off of my head, but if you want to get a more comprehensive list of passages to keep in mind, literally just pick one. Revelation 20 would be a good place to start. And look up EnduringWord.com, David Guzik's commentary going through the Bible, or just Bible Hub, and note the references and allusions that are made throughout the book. So you'll be able to cross-reference those things and get more information. But again, just to recap briefly, what do we know about the millennium? It'll be for a thousand years. That's the when. We know that Jesus will be reigning. That's the politics. We know there won't be any wars. That's the economics and military. We know that the world won't not only be restored to Eden-like state, but even animals won't be harming people anymore. We read that in Isaiah chapter 11. We know that Jesus will be ruling from Jerusalem. We read that in passages in Zechariah and Micah. And we also know that during this time, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Mankind's nature will still be there, but we'll keep that under control, ruling and reigning with him, which you can read in Revelation 20. Just some stuff to look up, but those would be the 
brief answers we can give. Thank you, Sean. Very good. We had a question coming from Dan on our website. Did, why did God create so many people? Is God after a specific number of people for salvation before he returns? Also, is that why we can't get married in heaven? <laughs> yeah, the uh, arguments made that the reason we won't have uh, marriage in heaven is because we won't reproduce, which is true. But then the reason we still exist is that to reproduce. Is that true? And this gets, uh, Dan, was it, into the realm of yes. predestination and foreknowledge. Does God know the number of people? And there's <clears throat> a lot of Kabbalic and rabbinic myth about the well of souls and all that entails. But when it comes to what we know, this is what we can always bank on. First of all, when God made us, he knew what he was getting in for, not just in the number of people, but the attitude of those people. Yikes. And also noting as well, when we read in Revelation 13 that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the ones in light of those who reject him, uh, he knew every single person that he would die for and consciously pursued incarnating and suffering on their behalf anyway. As far as the reason why God, quote-unquote, wants so many people, again, it would be the same reason why he wanted one person to begin with. The purpose of our creation isn't so that we feel good about ourselves or that we realize the divine within us. It's because we can enjoy fellowship with God, that we can glorify God in a unique way. Just like the angels, they were created for a purpose, so were we. The number of us, the number of them, that is something that God uh, hasn't revealed to us. But we have been revealed something, and it's how we can start glorifying him again in something other than wrath, which is great. <laughs> so um, that would be how I'd deal with that question. Any more you'd want to add, Adrian? Well, when I think about God as Father and now being the father of three, I desire to create babies. I really wanted to be a dad, and and now realizing that I was right. <laughs> being, being a parent is a supernatural thing. It has changed my life beyond words, and not just because it's hard and responsible, but there isn't anything that I could ever not desire for my kids. And really, it, it goes back to that word we used earlier, hedonism. I was reading Desiring God, which is uh, John Piper and his ministry, he refers to himself as a Christian hedonist, but he defines hedonism very, very carefully, and that is that the ultimate goal in life is satis satis being satisfied. And what he wrote is that joy is not optional, it's essential. He, he says Christian hedonism is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, his glory, and our deeper desire to be happy are one and the same, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It literally commands us, Scripture, to have joy. Joy is not something we experience. Joy is something we decide. And when, until Pastor Peter explained that to me, joy was just like, well, someday I hope it happens to me. I hope I can experience joy. Joy is a decision, and if God's uh, reason for creating us is to experience ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him, then he would want to create as many people as possible. And now when, when, he, when he says, how, why did God create so many people? I, I initially thought, well, he only created two. What do you mean so many? There's only two and the rest was the, the natural outworkings of God having created and having commanded them to be fruitful and multiplying. Uh, but I guess in the sense you could say that every human being that's created in the womb is a creation of God yeah, through um, the original creation. 
But as far as the number of people in the population, why are, why is it this number rather than that number? I don't know that Scripture gives us a, an, an answer to that question, but we can, like you said, at least drive in an answer of what what is the purpose of creation. And if the purpose is for God to be glorified and for us to experience ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him, then it would be His desire to see as many people as possible to experience that. And so the more the merrier. And that's why in Revelation... We see uh, countless, endless numbers of people from every nation, every tongue. And that brings God great satisfaction because all these individuals are satisfied in him. And what? And, and you think, well, gosh, gosh, that seems kind of weird for someone who's saying, my satisfaction is for you to be, you know, worship so that I can fill your every need. Well, when you, you, you it may not seem... It may seem a little off to you until you're a parent. That's why I brought up the idea of being a parent. My joy and my children's joy is unbe- unbelievable. And I and I'm a, I'm a broken fallen human being. If you know like Romans talks about how how if a human being, a human parent can give a good gift to their child, how much more can the creator of the universe? So if I can experience this tremendous joy and and just unspeakable level of excitement to give and experience the joy of my children. Can you imagine an infinite, perfect creator and his motivation and what he experiences when we are satisfied in him? Hmm. Oh my goodness. We serve a giant, enormous, awesome God. Yeah, and uh, just one more passage to keep in mind. This would be an argument from an inference, not from a plain statement. But uh, the prophet David made the following observation, uh, speaking of his creation, one person at least being made. Psalm 139 and verse 16, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. That is his days. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So I could infer from that, since God knows the entire lifetime and limits thereof to one life, I would also then conclude, if God knows everything and he knows the days of his life, that is something, then God would also know the lives and days of everyone that can and would be created. But note, that's an inference, not something to read into the text, stick to what's actually written, focus on God individually rather than get into some bizarre Thanos eugenics and saying, we don't want to <laughs> overpopulate the earth. That's not biblical. So yeah, That threw me off a little bit about the question as if, why would God, why is there so many people? Actually, there's not. The earth is quite capable of comfortably housing way more people than we could probably triple the world's population if we didn't squander the resources the way that we do. Yeah, problem is that, uh, well... Man, the earth is capable of supporting it. Man's nature isn't capable of supporting himself. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Yeah. yeah, and we're doing a pretty good job ending life <laughs> on a regular basis. Right, oh. yes. Thank you, guys. Now, the question here, I like this question a lot. It's, a, I think, a question that a lot of people struggle with from Nina on our website. In waiting for the right man or the right job, etc., do I wait on God or do I put myself out there? Can I make a decision too quickly? Or can I wait too long and miss out? If I marry the wrong person or take the wrong job, will I still be used by God there or miss out in rewards? What is my purpose? So really just a general. I remember when I first came to the Lord, I don't know if it was the people I was with or the church, but there was a real emphasis on, you know, what is God's will for my life? What is God's purpose? And you need to find that. You need to seek that. And you need to 
Um, hone in on that because kind of this is, as Nina's saying, you're going to miss out. You know, you can make the wrong decision and be outside the will of God mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And it was very stressful. Um, but, uh, but how do we do that? How do we wait on God? How do we seek the Lord in big decisions in life that can change our whole path? Well, I, I remember one, two, two different thing, lines of thinking that, that I was presented. And one may have been bad. <laughs> what, what the preacher Share the showed, bad one first. Yeah, I'll share the bad one first. He drew a line on the screen, and he had like an overhead projector. This is a long time ago. I was a brand-new believer. And he said, this is your life on this line and this is God this is you in God's will and if you sin and you make a wrong decision he drew a line downwards and then put a line going all the way across so he goes now you can never be on God's original plan which is this line now because of that one sin that one time where you decided to go against God's will now you're on this path it's not God's optimal will for you you could have been here but now you're stuck here Remember, and every time you sin you keep changing and thwarting god's will for your life away from his optimal plan now it sounds like well, that makes sense on the surface because you know moses could have led the children of israel or or the jew the, the hebrews out of egypt had he not murdered the guy right i mean sometimes we think that no. moses could have done that <laughs> but uh, really could he i, I mean if you're going to believe in God's sovereignty, it seems to me that God would use you in any circumstance at any point in your life equally, regardless of what uh, bad decisions you've made in the past. Now, of course, there is a limit to that. I mean, if you do something as silly as end your life, then obviously there's nothing else left to do. But um, <clears throat> I, when it comes to uh, waiting on God, the other train of thought I was given that I thought it was just a, a concept, not necessarily a specific passage. I'll let Sean do that. But the idea of actively waiting on God and rather than passively waiting. And I made the mistake of always sitting there waiting for God to write on the walls, twiddling my thumbs, going, I can't make a decision. I can't live my life until God says jump. All the while ignoring the fact that Scripture already tells me what to do. Scripture has already revealed my purpose in life. He's already revealed that to the body of Christ. The only nuance of what changes me or what's different for me than it is for Sean is what are my gifts? What are my strengths? What are my abilities? What are my desires? My pastor, the, the other side of it, used to always say, well, what is the desire of your heart? As you worship and submit your life to God, what is the desire of your heart? Because Jesus lives there. So live out the desires of your heart as far as what, it, what you take joy in doing. And that is God's will for you. And so I I used to overcomplicate waiting on a specific answer for God when later on I realized, you know, God has made it pretty plain <clears throat> what my purpose in life is. Now it's me understanding what my spiritual gifts and strengths are and being involved in God's plan for humanity in any way that I can. And that when it comes to a vocation, you know, usually that when it comes to your career, there's a difference between a job and a vocation. You know, a job or a career is just something that I think I would enjoy doing to make a good living. But a vocation is kind of a sense of the, the collision of my skills, my gifts, my strengths, and glorifying God in humanity the best way that I can. And so a vocation is somewhat of a calling. And uh, I think it's a, a way where you can, rather than waiting for God to answer, you actively pursue, like Isaiah, I think there's a passage in Isaiah that says, well, if I go to the right or go to the left, whichever way I go, I'll hear a still small voice, this is the way. Um, and James says, 
you know, do not say in your heart, I'm going to go do this and do some business and go to that city and do that. He says, if it's the Lord's will, I will go do this and I will do that. But James doesn't say, don't plan, just wait. He says, no, just make sure that your heart and mind is continually submitted to God and you are waiting on God, but you are actively waiting. I don't know if I should get this degree, but I'm going to, I, I desire this. I want to do this. I'm going to walk down this path all the while saying, God, if this is your will, I'm going to keep going. But if it's not, please make it clear to me that I should go down a different path. And I think that's the essence of active waiting on God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, when you're put in a situation where you don't know what to do next, the most important thing is to fall back on what you do know. We don't have to leave the guesswork, what's the will of God for me? Because scripture plainly lays it out. And you know, if you're in the position that I am, you can fall back on this one fairly straightforwardly. This is First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God. Not subtle. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of such, as we forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, and he clarifies, you're not re rejecting this, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God. The next chapter also repeats this point in something a bit more proactive, not just in what you shouldn't do, but what you should be doing. This is 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, not for everything, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, not subtle. So if we know what we should be doing right now, it would be the same thing that we'd be doing with the married guy over here or the single guys over here. When we're talking about the issue of what am I called to do? Well, fall back on the basics. Mm -hmm. If uh, it extends to algebra, then I'm sure that will become apparent when it's time. But if on the other hand, and this is, I think, the big hazard of hypotheticals, when we ask the question, well, what if and what if and what if? Okay, what are? What are you doing right now? Are you becoming the kind of person who you would want to marry were you in your future husband's shoes or, in my case, wife? Mm -hmm. If I'm never called to physically commit myself to one of God's daughters, I haven't missed anything. I get eternal fellowship with Jesus. That would literally just be a practice run. But if on the other hand, I were to see someone who's married, I don't get jealous or bitter because I'm not called to that. I have the grace of God worked enough in my heart and life to understand if I pursued that relationship without being called to it, it wouldn't be closer to heaven. It would be as far from it as this life would allow me mm. to. So the point being made is this, Nina, careful, and I'm not saying this is where your heart's at, I'm speaking from my own paradigm and the issues I had to work out with. The culture today calls it the incel mindset, involuntary celibacy. What I would call it is idolatry, making marriage the answer to your problems in this life, your loneliness, your grief, your desire for companionship. Jesus can meet those things. I mean, proof. Doesn't mean the struggle's not easy. Doesn't mean that my fallen flesh still tries to counterfeit me from time to time. But if I make something bigger than it is, that's either my pride distorting it or me making it into an idol. And that's something you want to avoid. But if, on the other hand, we want to take a step forward and just say, don't do that, what can I do? Be like Jesus. Either A, a nice guy's going to notice who finds the traits of Jesus, which hopefully you will too, attractive, 
or you'll be all the more ready to see Jesus when it's your time to see him. Either way, you haven't missed anything. When we say, well, am I missing out on something? You're, you're missing out on propaganda. That's what you're missing out on, Nina. You remember Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about yourself. Just devote yourself to God today, and that's all you need to worry about. Our ultimate, God's ultimate plan for our lives is to be conformed to the image of his son. So that should be our first and foremost priority. Whatever else we do, as as Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it in the name of the Lord. Psalm 23 has brought me a lot of comfort in my life, especially in, you know, I've been through a couple of very dark and difficult times, but, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, he makes me mm. lie down. You know, he's a, that shepherd role mm. is something that is that became very clear, you know, about eight, eight years ago, went through a very difficult time. Mm -hmm. That shepherd role, you know, that when you think about sheep and a shepherd, the sheep aren't asking like, well, what, you know, what are we gonna eat? Where are we gonna go? When do we sleep? When, you know, it's like, you go here, you eat that, you lay there, you go here, you know, and, and the Lord is our shepherd. And yeah, we have, you know, choices and all those kind of things, but we have a shepherd who is guiding the parameters of, of that, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not be in want for anything because he guides me, he's rod and his staff, they comfort me, and the comfort is that he's, he is guiding us. In yeah, and, us, and so. Paul echoed that when he said, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. You know, he's talking to the Philippians, and he says, I learned to be with plenty, and I learned how to starve. I've learned how to be cold, and I've learned how to have all that I need. Uh, and where was he writing is. those words from, by the way? Prison. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what does he know? Yeah. From uh, unlawful imprisonment, by the way. Yeah. That's yeah, when he, when he lays out his resume in that same letter, you know, he talked about how many times he was beaten and dragged and left for dead and stoned, and you're, you're thinking, huh, no wonder he said, I was, I'm, we are being poured out as a drink offering for you. <laughs> that was in reference, yeah, to the Jewish law. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Great, great answers, guys. Um, we're, we're coming towards the end of the show here. Time flies when you're mm. having this wonderful time. Um, we have a question here from Mary. This is a pretty deep kind of uh, theological question, I would say. How did Lucifer become prideful in the presence of God before evil was even created? So basically... Evil was not created. It is a deprivation of good. I think what will answer this question is just the definition of good. Good is, according to the Christian worldview, God's nature. We determine what is good based off of the characteristics and desires and intentions of the one who made the thing. If I invented something, then I have the right to tell people how it ought to be used and how it ought not to be used. It's not God arbitrarily saying, do this, don't do that, and that is therefore good and evil. No, evil is literally, by definition, meta-ethically, not good. So if we ask Lucifer's fall, it was when he deviated from God's nature. You can read how and why in Isaiah 14. But the point being made is this, when we ask the question, and this is what's concerning to me uh, more and more, is when we say, so what, does, what makes God choose these sins over others? Why is this not this? Well, it's not him. And that's what I think a lot of people miss out on when they're going through scriptures. They're forgetting the focus is him, hmm. not the eloquent teachings that he provided. It's the revelation of himself. And if he's your focus, then you look at Lucifer and go, you're not him. 
and it's going to spell itself out fairly <coughs> eloquently. But uh, as the question's phrased on the screen, we'll just note that point as well. Lucifer's sin in heaven was pride, which is the not-God nature. It's a de- self-deceptive view of yourself and others. You see yourself as lower or higher than God does and treat people accordingly. So if we ask the question, what does that do? Well, exhibit A, you're uh, lower than a worm, according to Ezekiel 28, and will be brought to the shame of all nations. It's not a model you want to follow. Yeah, and, and perhaps you just misworded the question. I don't know that she or he meant to say that Marianne. evil was created. Marianne, so she, yeah. I'm assuming. It's more like how, how was there sin... How did Lucifer sin in heaven, a place that before, should be without before sin? Before evil was in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before, same way Adam and Eve fell. Yeah, they had same, access to same everything Same way Adam good. and Eve. Yeah. Same way that people at the end of the millennial reign are going to rebel against God when Lucifer is w- once again released. Hmm. So that this, was possible in heaven. I guess that's the question. Like, how was, how was this possible that there could be sin in heaven? It's mm-hmm. supposed to be a pure place without It's where sin. God is. Yeah. I would like to ask Pastor Scott this sometime because I get confuddled by <laughs> Join this Join us next week on the <laughs> The, the, okay, we, we believe in what's called libertarian freedom, and that is the idea that human beings were created with a, generally speaking, free will. I can't will myself to be Michael Jordan, but I have uh, general autonomy when it comes to moral decisions and whether or not I choose to have faith and worship God. However, <clears throat> we also believe, or seem to, the Scripture seems to indicate that Lucifer... Uh, as one of the most beautiful created angels, also has this kind of free will. And so uh, he desired to lift his throne above the throne of the Most High. So he wanted to be greater than God. He He was so magnificent, so beautiful, apparently, that he looked upon himself with pride and said, I want to be where God is. I want to take my throne above his throne. I desire worship. And so he fell. Same reason why Adam and Eve fell. They walked with God. They had revelation from God. He gave them very simple do's and don'ts, you know, just the tree of life, any other, etc. And yet they were able to fall and sin. My question, which is a rabbit trail question, is how are we going to be in heaven and not capable of rebelling uh, is it because we've now been glorified and are in a resurrected body? I mean, yeah. I don't think we'll have a sin nature once we're glorified. I think that's pretty clear. The, the sin nature will be done away with. We have it on this world, but not then. But the question but did is, did Adam and well, Eve have a sin nature? Well, they no, did not. they didn't. They had a autonomy. They had a free will. So that's the same way to answer your question. That's how Satan fell. But how is it going to be different between Adam and Eve in the garden and us as resurrected new creations glorified bodies, how is God going to guarantee, or, or does God guarantee that we will not rebel? You I'm creating, You're creating a cliffhanger here. I am no, scared. I can, <laughs> I, can do, I can maybe deal with this in two minutes. Uh, when we're talking about this, it's an inference on lack of information. We don't know uh, what test case, basically, Lucifer was subjected to when he fell. The point is that we have to go off of what we are told, not what we aren't. So mm-hmm. what did uh, Lucifer ultimately go through that God allowed him and a third of the angels to fall? We aren't told. But here's what we're told about us and the inference then, does that mean that I could fall potentially sometime in the eons? Well, in First John chapter 3, verse 1, we're told, Behold, this is concerning the resurrection, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. 
Behold, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, mm. for we shall see him as he is. Notice the absence mm. of pride. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is ongoing, mm. pure. So if I then infer that on the question, then I have to ask the concerning aspect, what made Lucifer's fall so finite and our redemption so infinite? It's Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, to him who much is given, much shall Mm -hmm. be required. Lucifer in full exposure to God's glory Mm -hmm. fell. Adam and Eve in a limited revelation of God's glory fell. We were redeemed given the revelation of Jesus Christ and now are being brought into a fuller relationship for eternity. Mm. Lucifer, on the other hand, given full glory, has literally reversed that. So the question, again, is moot. If I infer, oh, will I fall? Well, that would be like saying the Son of God could rebel against the Father. That just doesn't jibe. So the big difference is, Adam and Eve, you could say, I don't think you fully understand what you're about to do. Whereas Mm. Lucifer, you know exactly what you're doing. And we're going to be in that same position, and we will be like, there's no way. I just can't. God is, I see him as he is. So that mm. makes sense. Thanks. That mm. clarifies it all. Yeah. First Corinthians 13 says we will, you know, we see dimly now, but then we will know as we are known. That's a, that's a high level. We will mm. know as we are known by, by God. We will no longer be children. Yeah. Wow. Well, that sounds like the music's coming on. It should be coming on. Yeah. What a great hour. We've never done it with this combination of the three of us. It was wonderful. We hope that really helps you out, everybody. God bless you. We'll see you next time here on A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.